0: Let's come back together, find our seats. I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here at Village and just thrilled to be able to keep teaching through Daniel, even though we're in like a really weird section. Some really strange images and visions and, um, just some things to, to picture as we've talked about as we come to God's Word and figure out why God is sharing what He's sharing and why He is inspired and, and directed this to be part of his word. And so we don't want to shy away from anything in scripture. We want to just read it all, learn it all, study it all. And so we are in the second half of Daniel, which is sometimes ignored, but we know that God has his word for us for his purposes. And so we studied it, study it. Amen. Psalm 13, one through six says this. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. We read those first four verses, and it's sort of depressing, right? But have have any of us ever felt like, how long? How long is this going to happen? How long is this trial that I'm going through going to happen? How long is this circumstance going to happen? How long is this heartache, these unmet dreams, this loss, this grief, this sickness, this joblessness? How long will this last? Today's text, I think, speaks to that. Just as the rest of the psalm... My secret is I cut it off before the last two verses of the psalm. It's a psalm of lament. And the first four verses share what is often in our heart. But listen to these last two verses. But... But I trusted in Your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in Your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. In the middle of feeling how long... The psalmist there puts their hope in the Lord, their trust in the Lord on this firm foundation that we sang about this morning. Today's text, I think, has this purpose in mind where God knows that His people are going to have how long moments. He knows specifically that Israel is going to have a terrible moment in, in years, just a couple hundred years from when Daniel is writing this. And He is preparing them and He is getting them ready to face this but also getting them ready to trust his loving kindness and getting ready, them ready to trust his faithfulness, even in the darkest of times. One author in, in their intro to this chapter, um, quoted Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I thought I've already used that one, uh, because <laughs> it's such a great children's book. But that's a little bit of what the children of Israel were facing and that God was in his grace and love and kindness preparing them for we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 today and so if you turn there with me we can study another vision another one of these strange visions i'll just warn you up front it's a strange vision and we're going to use this as an illustration for part of it and it doesn't get yeah we get stranger and stranger right but but it's in the middle of this series of visions where god is giving us windows into the future so that we will trust him so that we will know him and in this case, we just finished chapter 7, right? And we, we looked at the four beasts that matched chapter 2 and, and the image and the, the, the items that the image was built out of. But these four beasts represented four kingdoms. And then there was the final kingdom that was God coming in glory and, and destroying the evil on this planet and setting up His perfect and righteous and holy kingdom. Today's text, Daniel 8, zooms in on the middle two of those kingdoms. So we had four kingdoms. The first one was Babylon, second one Medo-Persia, third one Greece, fourth one Rome, but then extending to the final kingdom. In this case, we're just going to look at those middle two kingdoms, the Medo-Persian kingdom and, and Greece. And in the author here, Daniel is zooming in on those because God has given him a message for some of the things that are happening specifically in those times. Now we could come to this and say, ha, those are past So this chapter doesn't apply to me. This chapter has nothing for me. I can study it for history, historical reasons. but But I challenge us this morning to look at the character of God and the patterns we see in this chapter. Because those patterns haven't changed. God is still a good God. He is still faithful. He is still watching out for His people. Nothing has changed that. And Satan is still Satan. And he is still trying to execute his plan of evil on the planet. And it's this battle between God and Satan that just won't end until the end of time, and we get another window into that in Daniel chapter eight. So we see a really big picture of this chapter is God graciously warns his people of a coming dark tribulation, that He will faithfully limit and end so they will not lose heart. That's a message we need today. God will faithfully be with us through our dark times and trials. And they will come to an end because God is faithful and we should not lose heart. The structure of this chapter, Daniel chapter eight, is really two halves again, as, we're, as we've seen in several of the visions. The first half is really describing the vision. And, and so in, in verses one through 14, we get this description and the, this image, these images that are incredible. And then the second half, Daniel's like, what does that mean? Which, yeah, yeah. And God describes what it means to him. Gabriel, in this case, describes what it means. And so we have the interpretation in the second half of the chapter. And like we've done before, we're going to look at those together, sort of in parallel. So that way we don't just do the whole vision and then all the interpretation because they really build on each other. So we're going to take each section, look at the vision and the interpretation. Then the next section, look at the vision and the interpretation. And I think that will help us understand what God is trying to share with his people here. And so we, we come to verses 1 and 2, and we start with understanding the why. The first point is understanding the why. And there's some setup here. There's some historical setup, some picture setup. There's some setup as to why this vision is coming. And we see that both in verses 1 and 2 and 15 through 19, sort of the beginning of each section. And if you think of those as parallel, we're going to look at the beginning of each section. And so in verses one and two, we read in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that, which appeared to me at the first. And so he's basically saying, we're a couple years past the visions of the, of the prior chapter, but another vision different from the first, but another vision appeared. And if you're getting some of these strange visions, it's like, oh no, another one. Because these just rocked Daniel and they troubled Daniel. And and we'll see that again today. But another vision is coming. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. And so right from the start there, we see a couple of things about the vision. And, And Daniel here is probably still serving in Babylon, but the vision he is of of Susa about 200 miles to the east he probably wasn't really there it wasn't like room and transported there but in this vision he's now standing at the Ulai river or canal in Susa now at the time Susa wasn't a big deal it was off to the east it was it was part of the beginning of the Persian empire but it was sort of small but do you remember where we've seen Susa before Susa became the major capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, Esther took place in Susa. So we should study that book sometime. Um, Esther took place there. And so that's where Daniel gets transported to. And and I think the location is just setting the the beginning of the, the vision that this is the first kingdom that he's talking about. And so this is a fortress city that would rise to prominence in 12 or so years when some different things in history happen. But he probably was not physically there. It's just the setting of the vision. But then we get to the purpose. So that's the setting. The purpose Jump down to verse 15. And again, we'll look at these in parallel. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So he's just described the vision. We're going to get to that in a moment. But Daniel's like, I I need to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Or it's a word that's translated sometimes a strong and mighty man. And this is perhaps Gabriel. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so picture this. He's standing on the edge of this, this river, this canal, and he's, he sees this mighty man, this angelic being, and then off over the river, because it says between the banks, and that was wording used for, this is sort of just a voice hovering out over the water. Cool. And this voice had authority. This voice was one that was able to command Gabriel what to do. And so the inference here is that was probably the voice of God himself. And so Daniel, this is the vision Daniel's getting. He's standing by the river and mighty man, angel, and then somewhere where there is no man, just over the water, this, this powerful authoritative voice says, Gabriel, make this man understand this vision. So he, being Gabriel, came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. You think? Isn't that what we see so often in Scripture? When an angelic being or comes and visits news, there's fear and trembling because the supernatural is so different from the natural. And those that are with God carry his authority as they come as representatives from him. And so he was frightened and fell on his face. But he being Gabriel said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. We'll get to the time of the end in the next couple of verses and and how I think we need to interpret that. But he goes on, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So Daniel basically just passes out right there. This is, it's that big of a deal, that troubling. And, and we can read these pictures and like, oh yeah, it's just a little casual thing. No, these are amazing visions that are happening. And he passes out right there, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And so we see that the purpose is actually so Daniel would understand some things that are happening. That the people of God would understand some things that are about to happen. And a couple things that I want to uh, uh, mention there, especially in verse 19, it refers to the appointed time of the end. If God is saying there's an appointed time of the end, what does that mean about God? He knows. And he's controlling and directing. This is such a beautiful picture of the the sovereignty of God. Someone without power, without authority, without knowledge, can't appoint the time of the end. And so all through this, you get these little Easter eggs of just God's sovereignty and His power, and this is what God is trying to remind Daniel of. Now, there are a couple of ideas of what this means, the time of the end. Because what do we think of time of the end? We... I'm gonna assume you said like the end times, the rapture, the tribulation. That's what, and that is how the end is often used. But this wording is used in a lot of different ways. And, and we have some clues here like the latter end of the indignation, which is, is there in verse 19, or of the desolation. And this is how the desolation ends, is what this is saying. And so we can look through history and we can understand history. That this is probably talking about a time in the second century where there was a desolation from Antiochus Epiphanes, a desolation and a devastation to the people of Israel, a desecration of the temple that, that all would have fit into this. And actually that happened under the, the Grecian Empire, which is where it happens in this setting. And so really I think we need to see this as dealing with a time of tribulation that is coming for them, but is history for us. But that doesn't mean we can't learn anything from that. Maybe a great way to think about it is if I'm talking to you, and we're talking about college, some of you that are in college, and we're talking about your classes, and, and maybe you're talking about anatomy and physiology and how awful it is. That's what I hear from everyone. And, and we're talking about just how difficult school is. And I say, you know what? Let me tell you about the end, though the end is going to be okay. You're going to have a degree and it is going to be good and you're going to get through this. Am I talking about end times there? No, the context lets you know that I'm talking about the end of the struggle you're going through. And I think that's a helpful way of understanding the end here. It's dealing with a historical time in the second century BC that God is trying to encourage them through. And, and some of these things we'll get a little technical on, and we can talk about that a little bit further if you'd like. But again, we, we need to think through prophecy in the mountain range, which we talked about three or four weeks ago, that we are often seeing one event, but it has multiple fulfillments. And I think this is a great way of seeing that, where we have one event, the the end, and this is going to be with Antiochus Epiphanes and what happens to, to um, the temple there, but it is prefiguring the end of time in a double or a dual fulfillment. So the best way to think of this is it applies to their coming situation, but it has overtones that this is for the time of the end of the age as well. The coming trial will be a type of what will come at the end. And so we can read this with hope and assurance of how God is going to take care of us and be faithful at the end, even as he's talking about a specific example. And don't examples help us? God worked this way in this situation. He never changes. And so we can count on him to work this way in this situation. The points though, and we could we could talk about time of the end. There's people that disagree on that and that's fine. And some that view this in two halves, but don't miss the bigger point. God is appointing the end. That's the bigger point that's being made here. God is appointing the end. He is sovereign. Evil is limited. If you come away with anything today, that's what you're going to come away with. God is sovereign. Evil is limited. Trust him. A familiar theme in Daniel. So that gives us the setup of the purpose and everything. So let's jump into the vision and, and really try to picture this. Use our, our imaginations this morning. And we go back to verses 3 and 4 and verse 20. And the first picture of the vision is this ram. this Medo, and, and it represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The ram, the Medo-Persian Empire, will rise to power. Keep in mind, this is still Babylon in power. Daniel is serving Belshazzar. This is before chapter 5 of Daniel, before the Medo-Persian, 12 years before probably, before the Medo-Persian empire has even risen to prominence. And we read this in verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, remember along the river banks, I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. Not a huge deal, except the the, the situation with the horns. And we're going to talk a lot about horns this morning. It had two horns. Both horns were very high. One was higher than the other, but and the higher one came up last. And it's sort of like this moving picture where this ram has a couple of horns, and one's really big, and this, this little one comes up and grows and becomes bigger. Sort of weird. But that was illustrating the Medo-Persian Empire. I think I have a picture of a ram. Um, so this would be a ram with horns and one type of ram that would be in the Holy Land. Um, and so maybe this helps us picture, but picture one of those horns starting out smaller and then growing really big. And Daniel's like, this is strange. This is bizarre. And so it had two horns. Both horns were high. One was higher than the other. The higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and become, became great. And then verse 20, as for the ram, this is the interpretation of that. We get one verse. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And so this is the first part of the vision, this ram. And, and we can understand some of the things. This is all pictures trying to show us some, some, some things that are going to come. For Daniel, trying to show him some things that are going to come. The Medo-Persian empire coming to a palace near you. Or coming to a Babylon near you is the message for him. And it's interesting because historically we can look back and it's sort of fun to see how history fits this. The Persian ruler actually often carried the gold head of a ram when he marched before his army. And so that was a symbol for Persia. And we know from scripture that this is the Medo Persian Empire. But some of the thing, the 2 horn thing with one small and growing, that's actually what happened with Media and Persia. So Media was sort of the first on the scene, and they had this alliance. They were more powerful. Persia was smaller. And then Persia grew in prominence, grew in power, and sort of took over the whole kingdom to where sometimes it's even just called the Persian kingdom because it grew and took over. Do you see how the picture that God is giving Daniel fit history exactly? But it was given before history. It was given before this happened. And so all of this gives us confidence in a sovereign God that knows what is happening. West, north, and south that it talks about with this ram and and it's charging westward in these different directions. Those actually correspond to the directions that the Medo-Persian Empire took over countries. They subdued Babylon and Syria and Asia Minor. They made raids to the west. They made raids upon Greece. To the north, Armenia, Scythia, Caspian Sea region. To the south, Egypt and Ethiopia. And so it matched the directions of their conquest. Coincidence? No, a great God. A great God. And we see the power of this if you look at the end of verse four. And this is a phrase that's repeated in the next part of the vision and then expanded on in the third part of the vision. No beast could stand before him. We get this description of how powerful the Medo-Persian Empire was. No beast representing kingdoms could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue him from his, pa- res- who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. Incredible power. This was an unstoppable kingdom until it wasn't. And that's what we're going to see over and over today. Man's greatness is unstoppable until it isn't. Because everyone falters. Everyone dies. Every kingdom passes away except one. The, the, The last thing that I was thinking about at this this is before the whole writing on the wall that Pastor Andrew taught us about. And I wonder if this vision might have given Daniel a little more confidence as he's he's telling the king about the writing on the wall. Because he's already seen what's going to happen. He's already seen that the Medo-Persian Empire is going to take over. And he's actually seen beyond that. And so he, could, when the writing's on the wall, he comes to Belshazzar, he could say, yeah, you're, you've been counted, you've been found wanting, your day's in tonight. Because he's already seen it. God is doing his work. So that's the first part of the vision, the ram. Then we get to the second part of the vision, the goat unicorn is what I'm calling him, or Alexander the Great. He will displace the ram. And this is where it's funny because we just heard that the ram was unconquerable. No one could oppose him. And the very next thing is he gets destroyed by the next animal. He was great until he wasn't. And so we, we get to this goat unicorn that's taking out the ram, and I looked up because I thought it would be sort of fun if the rams today were playing like the colts or something like that, but um, they're playing the bears, so it doesn't really fit. But um, <laughs> verse 5, and there, there's a lot here that we want to read. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. It had the single horn coming out from its forehead between its. What does that sound like? A unicorn, right? So I'm calling it a unicorn goat, which is why we have a unicorn. Um, I, I have trouble picturing that because unicorns are the, like these fantasy animals growing up. But that's what's being described as this goat that has this single horn. We have a couple more pictures here. This is a two horned goat. Um, but this is from the time period, and so you get an idea of the goats and what they would have seen. Next one is another goat. This is an ibex from the Holy Land, and different kind of goat, different horns. but none of that fits because it 's all two horns. so you have to picture that with one horn. This was a, a from Susa where Daniel is having his vision this isn 't a goat it 's a horse, but it 's a single horn goat or horse. unicorns weren 't original with us. Um, incidentally, this unicorn isn't about rainbows and butterflies. Um, quite the opposite. And, and it's probably good that our kids aren't in here, because it'll just destroy their whole impression of unicorns. But let's keep reading. Had a horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And we get some similar phrasing here. The ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Same wording that is not an accident. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. He was great. He was unstoppable. Until he wasn't. Because man dies. And all earthly kingdoms fail. And only God lasts. And those that follow him. Verse 21, it it gives us the explanation. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between its eyes is the first king. It was Alexander the Great. And we know some things from, from history. Alexander the Great came to power swiftly, which is why you saw the wording that, that it ran and its feet didn't even touch the ground in verse 5 there. And so Alexander the Great took over the whole earth and we see that he ran across the face of the whole earth in, in verse 5. couple things there. Um, this matches the winged leopard of chapter 7. We're just, so this, this is that, that second king or third kingdom in chapter seven. And Alexander the Great here, he had virtually conquered the known world by 26. And I look at that, I'm like, man, I'm behind. I, I haven't done that much and I'm maybe double that. Um, he had virtually conquered because it was so swift and so powerful. And he defeats the ram who is no longer great, who is no longer unstoppable. And we know that Alexander the Great conquered Medo-Persia somewhere 334, 331 B.C., probably in that process. We have read that there is a brutal trampling and he brutally attacked the Medo-Persian empire. An utter defeat. One historian wrote, there was an overwhelming defeat where Alexander visited upon Persian forces at the Granicus River in 300 BC. With only 35,000 men, Alexander's forces plunged through the river attacking Darius' 100,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen, reportedly killing 20,000 at a loss of only 100 Greek troops. Get a picture here? not only of the awfulness and the power, but the swiftness of their defeat. No one could stand before Alexander the Great. He ended up having approximately 1.5 million square miles of kingdom. Hard to picture, it's a lot. He ruled the known world with an iron fist, and he was great and unstoppable until verse 8 and verse 22. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, in the prime of his power, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Later on in verse 22, As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And we know that Alexander the Great ended up dying in the prime of his career. Um, and he left two sons. Those sons were murdered. And soon after some infighting and struggle, the empire became divided into four sections. Greece and Macedonia, Thrace and Asia Minor, Syria and Babylon, and Egypt and Israel. But they didn't have the same power. And, and so we see that in, the, in his greatness, he, he took fever and died, maybe malaria, not even in battle completely powerless against sickness and death and he's gone and his kingdom is separated again predicted hundreds of years before it happened alexander and his greatness didn't last and i'm reminded of the saying the cemetery is full of irreplaceable people and we're reminded of the mortality of man and the greatness of god but none of these are actually the main point of the vision And the main point's coming. All of this is setting up what's going to happen. And point number four, the little horn or the man of intrigue dominates all for a time. The little horn, the man of intrigue dominates all for a time. And in verses 9 through 14 and then 23 through 26, we see, and this is probably the the most that we're going to read because this is the center point of of what God is trying to comfort His people through. Verse 9 out of one of them came a little horn. And we know that Antiochus Epiphanes grew out of the Seleucid kingdom, out of one of those four. And and so you have to picture that these there are these four horns and then they sort of melt away and one horn comes up and dominates all the others and we're back to a unicorn goat. Because one ruler is ruling over it all. And this one is standing greater and more powerful and reaching into heaven and defying God Almighty and daring the Most High that He is not the Most High. And that's a problem. And so one of them, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It was great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And we're going to get to what all that means in a moment, but I want to give us the whole picture. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and it will prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long, and that's where we get the phrase how long, we've heard that in the the psalm, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All of that's the vision. So jump to 23 and we're going to see the explanation of that and look at. then we'll we'll tear it apart and look a little more. And at the later latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face. One who understands riddles, or the NIV translates that, a man of intrigue, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he will make deceit prosper under his hand, and his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And so now we get this amazing description of this little horn. And these verses are packed through of things. And and we're going to go through them pretty quickly because it gives this description. But God is preparing His people for the coming crisis. And He's doing it both by promoting trust and faithfulness because we know God is above all, but also giving comfort because we know God will only let it last for a time. I would agree with most commentators that this little horn here, that these events really represent, as I've already said, Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The eighth ruler of the Seleucid Greek Empire. He was well known for his exploits against Israel. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. They didn't necessarily have that. But we can see how events fulfilled these verses and how it all just fits into place in amazing ways. And it should boost our confidence in an almighty God who knew this before It would happen. Much of of the history we know from some writings from the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. First Maccabees is where a lot of this comes from. And so this is about Antiochus, but again, it's prefiguring the Antichrist in Revelation. It's a type of Antichrist. And so let's look at the description out of these two passages. And this is where, man, there's just a lot of, of words. So I'm going to break it down into a few items of description First thing we see in both verse 9, um, well, in verse 9 and the idea of the, of the second half, is Antiochus started out small, a little horn, but increased in power. He was seemingly insignificant. See, what's interesting is Antiochus wasn't the rightful heir to the throne. His brother was, his older brother was. When his older brother passed away, it should have gone to his nephew, right? Because it should stay in that line. But Antiochus was a shrewd man. He was a master of intrigue, and through cunning and through manipulation, through political manipulation, he convinced not only the nephew, but everyone, that he should be the next heir. We don't know how he did it, but he did. And so we see right from the start this seemingly insignificant man rising to power. And then we see that he he grew exceedingly toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And to the south, that represents he conquered Egypt and kept fighting Egypt. To the east, Persia and some other countries there. The glorious land representing Israel. And that's where Antiochus spent most of his time fighting, is those groups of people. And he grew in those areas. And so the first description we have is this man starts seemingly small, but increases in power. Second description, he arrogantly thought he is as great as God. He arrogantly thought he was as great as God. You see that in 10 and 11. It grew great. It's the horn, but it's rep- representing Antiochus Epiphanes. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. Some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. And that's, that's a hard sentence to understand. But the idea is, is he grew so big that he was challenging God and challenging God's people. In this case, and we'll see this in the description in the second half in verse 25, in this case, that host that is being thrown down and trampled on, the stars that are being thrown down, probably are God's people. Probably the Israelites in this case. And so he thinks he's as great as God, he challenges God, and starts to tear at God's people. That is how arrogant he was. He's murdering the saints. In verse 11, it become great, even as great as the prince of the host. So he thinks he's becoming as great as God. This is a serious arrogance, unlike we have ever seen. In verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. That's not a compliment. (laughs) In your own mind, you're really great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. There's All of these things, there's lots of debate that I just don't have time this morning to go into. But the prince of princes could be God, or it could be Jesus Christ. And this again could be a type of antichrist of what will happen at the end. But he is defying God that much we know. And so he starts small, but then he arrogantly thinks he's as great as God. Third description that we have here is he's fierce and harsh. Verse 23, at the latter end of the kingdom, when transgressors have reached their limit, because God is limiting things, a king of bold face or of stern face, insolent, harsh, all those that oppose him will be punished. And so we know that was true of Antiochus Epiphanes fourth description there he was a man of intrigue i've mentioned this a man of intelligence persuasive he could manipulate with the best of them in verse 23 we get that in in the esv it says one who understands riddles and it's this idiom to say he can get things and understand things he can manipulate words he's a man of intrigue and so we see this this under underpinning of deceit as he manipulates and gets his way we never see that today, right? And I say that in jest. Sometimes it is depressing because it feels like that is the foundation of politics. And it shouldn't be. But this, that's not new. This man is a man of intrigue. Fifth description there, he will have great power. He will have great power. Again, 10 and 11, he will be, he will grow great and we, we see his power. This is similar to he arrogantly thinks he's as great as God, but he actually will have great power on earth. Verse 24, his power shall be great. And, and that's hard to read because we're like, how, how is God allowing this? But for his purposes, for a time, a sovereign God is working his, his plan. Some of it you see, um, We see just a hint of that in verse 12. A host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And so part of what God is using this man for is to discipline the transgression of his people, the sin of his people. And we see that over and over in the Old Testament. Verse 24, though, is interesting. He's powerful, but not by his own power. And if we compare that with other passages, and as a type of Antichrist, it really looks like it's referring to that Satan is somehow empowering him, Satan is somehow, um, giving him the ability to act in this way. It could also be interpreted that God's allowing it, but the, the, just the way this is used with other passages, it really looks like this man is empowered by Satan. In a different way, a special way. And not a good special. This man also persecuted God's people. Verses 10 and 11. Some of the hosts, some of the stars it threw down, it trampled them. It became great. But then look at the end of verse 11. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, speaking of who was being trampled. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And we see that, that this man is attacking God's people. He's attacking God's temple. In verse 24, he will succeed in what he does. He causes destruction. And again, we get insight from, from history and, and the history writings of the time. We, we know that he plundered the temple. He did deeds of murder. It's estimated that in some of his first attacks, he slaughtered 80,000 men, women, boys, girls, and even infants in Israel, in Jerusalem. This was an evil man empowered by Satan to defy God and God's people. Along with that, number eight of the description, he would desecrate and profane the temple. We just read he stopped temple sacrifices. In fact, he stopped a lot more than temple sacrifices. In December of of 167 B.C., He came in and he came into the temple and he he didn't just tear it down and destroy it. Instead, he defiled it and profaned it and he set up the statue of Zeus in the temple. He brought in pigs and forced them to sacrifice pigs, an unclean animal, on the altar to Yahweh, but sacrificed them to Zeus. The, The Jews were forbidden to follow the Mosaic law Forbidden to observe the Sabbath. They were forbidden to observe their annual feasts, traditional sacrifices. They were forbidden to circumcise their children. Anything having to do with what God commanded him, this man opposed and, and made it against the law. Because he was determined to wipe out Judaism and the worship of Yahweh and replace it with the worship of his God and him. This is evil. Some of the historians record human sacrifices in the temple as well. This is going to be a very dark time for Israel. And God in His love and care for His people will not let them face that unwarned and without His help. Verse 12, the ninth description there, He would attempt to destroy God's Word. You see that in the end of that. And it will throw truth to the ground. It will throw truth to the ground. And yes, that could mean it just lies all the time and doesn't recognize truth. But looking at the wording and the way it's used, it probably means he's throwing God's Word to the ground. And we know even from history, the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and they burned with fire. So Antiochus was one of the ones that was burning the the Old Testament. And trying to to rid it, rid this planet from the scourge of God's word. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant, anyone adhering to the law, was condemned to death by decree of the king. Do you see how dark the time was? Oh, many have tried to get rid of God's word. Antiochus wasn't the first, he wasn't the last. No one has succeeded. There's stories the Roman emperor Diocletian tried and failed. And the next emperor made God's word the law of the land. In the 1750s, French philosopher Voltaire tried to expunge his area from God's word. He declared, within a hundred years, the Bible will be forgotten. When he died, his home was bought and turned into the French Bible Society. I love that. And they distributed thousands of Bibles. China has tried. Castro has tried. No one has gotten rid of God's Word because God's Word will last forever. He is faithful. Evil reigns for a limited time and in a limited scope. Description 10. And this is the troubling one. And this is, we can feel this in, in this fallen world, in this Genesis three, three world. It will look like he's succeeding. He will prosper and do as he pleases. And we see that again in verses 11 and 12 and 24 and 25. A host will be given over to it. He will, he will take over a bunch of people. He will reign over them together with the regular burnt offerings. It will, it will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. How long, O God? How long will evil prosper? Verse 24 and 25, He shall succeed in what he does. He shall destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper. How long? See, Antiochus set himself up as a representative of God and equal with God himself. He in fact, he, he minted coins. I know this was an earlier picture, Jeremiah, that I skipped. To it. Can we jump to that? This is one of the coins he minted. And that inscription, which I know is hard to read because we don't speak that language, the inscription was Theos Epiphanes, or God Manifest. And he was, on his money, was saying, I am God Manifest. This goes back to the arrogance, but it also looks like he's prospering. He is doing what he pleases. And so that's where the name Antiochus Epiphanes come from. It means the illustrious one. One that, that manifests who God is. The Jews had a different name for him. They would say Antiochus Epimenes, which is close and it means madman. But he was great in his own mind. Last description. He would be a deceiver. Verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper. Deceit will look like it's working. Lies will look like they're working. He negotiates the currency of lies. And he destroys many as he does this. Now this is a difficult passage to read because we know that all this happened in Israel. And we know that this man actually did these atrocities to God's people and defied God in these ways. But point number five is, but God. I had a longer point, but then I'm like, that's all really you need to say. But God. But God is still in control. He will limit what He can do and for how long. This man who rose to evil and defied God is still under God's sovereignty. Verse thirteen. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, And and in this vision we get people that are on looking, angelic beings, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? How long, O Lord, will this happen? And he said to me, and this, we can skip over this verse, but he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Hundreds of years before, God says, yeah, it's going to happen. And I'm cutting it off, not just eventually, 2300. Let's go with that number. And when you give an exact number, you better be right. <laughs> and, and it's, it's really interesting because God does just that, and we see even at the end of verse 25, He shall rise up against the prince of pieces, and He shall be broken, but not, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true because God is faithful. Seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And so the message of the but God portion of this is that we can remember in the darkest of circumstances, God is faithful. And he will bring those times to an end. How long? 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, if you, if you read on this, there's two, two camps that are 50-50, and I'm not even going to say which one I think, is. it's 50-50. This could be 2,300 evenings and mornings or 1,150 days. Because they had morning and evening sacrifices, so it would have been 2,300 sacrifices or 1,150 days. And that's a little more than three years. Or it could be 2,300 actual days. One is just over three years. The other is six years, four months. Here's what's interesting. Because we're like, oh, just look at history. And you can tell which one it is. They both fit history. Which is sort of annoying. No, (laughs) Or it's sort of cool because it is that true. In fact, if you go with the 1,150 number... And if you go from the time that the temple was desecrated and pigs were sacrificed and Zeus was brought in, approximately 1,150 days later was when the temple was cleansed. Pretty cool, huh? You know, we don't have exact dates, but Jerusalem was eventually delivered by the the courageous exploits, as one author wrote, of Judas Maccabeus, And his followers, and on December 14th, 165 B.C., the temple was purified, the altar of burnt offering restored, Jewish worship once again restored. December 14th, sound familiar? It's when the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah is. And it commemorates this time when the temple was restored, the Feast of Lights. So that could fit. 1,150 days could fit. So it must be 1,150, right? 2,300, if you go back from the cleansing of the temple to that, that is when Antiochus Epiphanes first came and murdered the high priest and took over. Which one is it? It doesn't matter. Because God ended it according to his timetable. And evil did not win. It was great. Until it wasn't. Because God is greater. It's broken by no human hand. In fact, Antiochus died. There's all kinds of debate about how he died. You can can just go down rabbit holes on this all the time. It was either he, he went insane or he died of disease. Either way, it wasn't his own doing. It wasn't in battle. God took care of it. God took care of it. Verse 26 there reminds us that the vision is true, which is why I put it as our our verse. You might think, well, that's a weird verse. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. And I would highlight that and underline that. God is faithful. He is true. He will not let His people down. So seal up the vision. This doesn't mean keep it hidden. This was used to preserve it and to put wax around it and preserve it until it was needed so it wouldn't decay. And that's exactly what this prophecy was for. It was to be preserved until it was needed. So why is this important? Why give a prophecy like this? Why is a warning helpful? And and I was reading, and, and one of the author had a similar story that came to mind, but, but a story that happened to me yesterday sort of helps me understand this. Um, I was going out in the garage, and I, I knew where everyone was. Susie was gone, and, and it was just Alicia, Jeffrey, and I, I think, at that point. or I, I, I knew where everybody was in the house. And I opened the door to the garage, and this tall man is standing there looking at me. And I, I think I wet my pants a little bit right then. It It freaked me out and scared me, right? What I didn't know is when I thought Jeffrey had walked back down the hall... <laughs> I owe you a dollar. I used your name. <laughs> when I thought Jeffrey had walked back down the hall, he had actually gone to the garage to get a basketball, and I didn't know it. And so I'm walking out to the... I know this is a silly example, but I bet you've had this happen. I'm walking out to the garage, and I think it's empty, and, and he's tall. And and I'm like, Ah! Would it have been different if I had seen him go out in the garage? There would have been no fear. There would have been no concern. I would have understood what was happening. It was in my lack of understanding, that fog of, yeah, that fear came. Well, God is telling them, I'm going out in the garage and I'm taking care of this. Don't worry. Does that make sense? The warning is part of God's love. The warning is part of God's kindness. The limiting is part of his grace and part of his protection. And so this this whole vision that is is really discouraging, <laughs> it's all about God's love and protection and grace. That even in the hardest of times, God has not forgotten you. Oh, I can cling to that. I can cling to that when I'm wondering how long. How long will X happen? How long will Y happen? How long do I have to go through this? God has already defined the end. And He already knows what the end looks like. And He is already executing His plan. And evil will be ended. The last verse, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. It was a troubling vision. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And and again, we can say, well, Daniel, he should have seen the hope in the vision. Did you hear what the vision was? It was disturbing. (laughs) Okay, that's not that disturbing. (laughs) It was disturbing. These unicorns were killed and destroyed. Because God's kingdom lasts. I think the best picture of it for me would be if God gave me a vision of my children's future and I could see everything that happened to them and part of it was knowing that they would go through a really difficult time. Even if I knew and had hope and confidence that God would bring them out of it because maybe my vision was that, my heart would be sad that they had to go through that, right? Yeah, and so I can understand as a parent. Daniel loved God's people. He loved Israel. And to see what his people would have to go through was troubling and appalling, even with the hope and the confidence that God is faithful. And so let's not come down too hard on Daniel for being appalled and overcome and sick because he loves God's people. But in the end, he was able to rise and go on because God's promises. Because we know that God limits evil evil seems to win for a time in your life trials will seem great for a time until they aren't because of god but god let's pray lord god thank you for your word thank you for even these strange images that you gave because you are trying to show us your sovereignty You are trying to help us through difficult times and have us rely on You. Lord God, I pray for people even in this room or watching or in the gym. I know a lot of people are going through a lot of junk in this fallen world. I know that a lot of people are wondering how long. Lord, comfort us and encourage us to know that You have those days numbered, You have our situations numbered, and You will execute Your plan. And we can trust You. And as the psalmist said, we can rest in the refuge of who You are and what You are doing. Lord, I pray that You would encourage us with these words. In Your name, Amen.